Well, we've been in a series called The Gospel According to Ruth, as we look in the Old Testament book called Ruth. The book of Ruth is sort of a hinge between uh, the, the period of what we call the Judges, when Israel was ruled by um, kind of circuit governors, in a sense. They were part military um, general, part um, magistrate, part spiritual leader, kind of all kind of combined in one thing. And they were somewhat itinerant, but it was not really the best time for Israel. In fact, one of the ways that Israel is described in, in the book of Judges is that oftentimes it's repeated that and every person did what was right in their own eyes. I don't know if you feel like we're living in that kind of time right now, but that's how it feels to me. Like we're sort of back in that, hey, everybody just does what feels good. Everybody just does what seems to be right for them. You know, my truth is my truth and yours is yours. And, you know, that's kind of the season it feels like we're back into. And and following the period of the judges, the people asked for a king. The last judge with the great prophet Samuel, they said, we want a king. And he said, no, you don't. He's going to tax you. He's going to send your kids off to war. Yes, we do. No, you don't. You're not going to like it. But they insisted and God said, fine, let them have a king. And so God um, allowed Samuel to anoint a guy named Saul to be the first king. And then following Saul, um, not a descendant of Saul, not in the kind of dynasty of Saul, but a, a new person named David became king. And David was sort of, is still heralded as sort of the greatest king that Israel had. <clears throat> So this little book of Ruth, these little four chapters are in a sense kind of a hinge, a tie between the season of the period of the judges and sets us up for the period of the kings because we're going to see that at the end of chapter four today. We've been just taking a chapter a week in this book and we've, we've seen how the book of Ruth is kind of a pre-telling of the good news message of Jesus Christ, that we are uh, rescued by the Redeemer, Jesus the Redeemer, he's a He's like one of us because as we celebrated this season, Jesus came to be in flesh and blood, fully human and yet fully God. And because of that, he was authorized. He was legally able to stand in our place and receive uh, the judgment for our sin at the cross. Well, in this little story, you have you have a Limelech, a, a man living in a little town of Bethlehem. You've heard of that little town before. Limanach and his wife Naomi, and they've got two sons, and they fall on hard times. It's a famine. They move across the mountain range, across the Jordan River, the other side of the Dead Sea, and, and they settle in the land of Moab. And they, you know, try to continue to make a living there. But while there, Elimelech, he dies. And then also the two sons die. They're married by this point, but without children. And so Naomi, the widow, and her two widowed daughters-in-law are faced with kind of a very difficult life. Meanwhile, they hear that things are better back in, in Bethlehem of Judea. And so Naomi says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to resettle in my homeland. And he, she says to her daughters-in-law, you girls ought to stay here. Start over. Find a husband. You belong here in Moab. One says, okay, I'll stay. And the other one says, no, I'm going with you. Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And she makes a, a faith commitment and a, and a loyalty commitment to not only to her mother-in-law Naomi, but to the God uh, of Israel. So they travel back, but they are destitute. And so the only way they can make a living is by what's called gleaning. 
Ruth heads out into the fields, pick up the scraps of, of barley. It's barley harvest season, and, and she's going to try to make a living. But she just so happens, as often as the way with God, is what we think is happenstance is really the Lord's directing. She lands in the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz notices uh, Ruth and recognizes, turns out, we're going to find out later, knows who she is and knows who her family is. And he instructs his workers, leave extra for her, let her share the water, let her eat meals with us. You know, we're going to kind of watch out for her and take care of her. And that's what happens. And, and then it becomes clear that Boaz is actually related to Ruth's the family she married into, her in-laws. And there's a provision in the Jewish law that says when, when a man dies and, and has no sons to carry his name, a near relative is, is to marry the widow and, and provide a son or hopefully provide a son that could still hold the land and carry the name forward. And, and, and Boaz and Ruth approaches Boaz and say, would you fulfill that role for us? So we're approaching that place, but what we discover is there's someone who's a little bit closer than Boaz is to this family. And so what has been developing is in part a romance story is suddenly all jeopardized because we kind of like Boaz. He's a lot older than Ruth, but we like him. And we like Ruth and we're really hoping they end up together because we just think they'd make a really cute couple. Right? And then we discover there's someone who is rightfully in place to marry Ruth. I'm going to read to you chapter 4 of Ruth. Chapter 4 of Ruth, beginning at verse 1, and it goes like this. Now Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I I, I want to talk to you. And so they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab? Yes, yeah. Well, she's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, All right, I'll I'll redeem it. In verse 5, then Boaz told him, well, uh, of course, (laughs) uh, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, uh, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Verse 6, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, "This because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Now, in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it over to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. Now, it seems odd, but very simple, doesn't it? No lawyers, no paperwork, no signatures, no escrow. Just give me the sandal. Let's get this done. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. And then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech 
Kilion and Malon. Those are the two sons. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. And then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. And then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. And Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. And the women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And this is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Thank the Lord for his word. It feel a bit like I am in Bethlehem this morning with our set all prepared for tonight's uh, children's program. So let allow your mind to wander as, as much as it would in this setting. Uh, I'll make one comment about the genealogy. I don't think I'll, I'll have reason to say this later, but this genealogy, if you're starting to like do the math, is some of us like to start really figuring this out. Oftentimes genealogies will be compressed in biblical pattern. And it's okay to say so-and-so is the son of so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. That's acceptable. My dad's name is Henry. My grandfather's name is David. My great-grandfather's name is Philip. It's acceptable, acceptable for me to say I'm the son of Philip Weeb, even though that is my great-grandfather. It's okay to say that. So I'm the son of Philip. Yeah, there's a few other generations in between. So don't be kind of alarmed when things are compressed in, in the Bible in that way. <clears throat> my middle name is Philip. And my son's middle name is David. So we try to keep those names alive in our family. Well, like any well-told story, what I like about this one is that it keeps us engaged right to the end. You know, we knew from the moment that we met Boaz that he would be the hero. We had that figured out pretty much right away. But just how he'd come through was not clear. So... From a literature perspective, it's a beautiful story and it's well told. And let's admit this too, that the deal making that goes on here does assault our current sensibilities somewhat. The idea that a woman could just be kind of bartered away with a sandal is a little troubling in our current context. So not everything that the Bible says is 
what we would say prescriptive. This is not meant how we are to do this. Um, no sandal trading for, you know, for marriage in our culture. It's, but you need to understand that today is not then, and then is not today. So you just kind of have to accept how things were done. And we do know that they were honorable people. And um, we're, we're going to just roll with that. What we do gain here are some details about Boaz. Um, what you're seeing is that he was a person of immense respect and good character. Right? He, he's got influence. I want to show you a picture here of an archaeological excavation of an ancient gate. And various you know, excavation sites in Israel reveal the same pattern. There's six kind of like alcoves that are built at this would have been the entry gate kind of facing us coming this way. There's a drainage uh, trough down the middle and then an, a, a roadway coming in and then you've got these alcoves. We don't really know what those were for. They might have been guard stations. They might have been storage gates. But what we do understand from this passage and numerous other ones in the Bible is that this was the place where deals were done. This is where transactions happen. I don't know if you've ever driven by the police station in Clovis, but there is a, a, a sign there that says something like Craigslist trade meetup area or something. A, a place where if you're buying a car or selling a car, you can say, hey, let's meet over in front of the police station. There's a designated place where we can go do the deal. Pretty nice that they would, they would do that. It's a safety feature. Well, that's how they did it. So you had a public, understood public setting. So what we've got here is a, a respected guy, Boaz. He can go, he take a seat. He, no one says, what are you doing here? It's like, oh, Boaz is at the gate, no problem. And he's waiting. Maybe he knows that his, this unnamed relative does business every day in the city and he knows he's going to be coming through. So he goes and sits and waits for him. Sees him, says, hey, come on over, I want to talk to you. And immediately grabs ten witnesses. Others who would, would say, you know, in, in Proverbs 31, it says um, that it's a blessing to find a woman of noble character to be your wife. And the description in Proverbs 31, it says her husband sits at the gate with the elders. If you read through the, the, the book of Job, you see the same thing. They, they sit at the gate. Respected people could do this. And so it's no problem for him to gather ten witnesses, uh, people that obviously respect Boaz enough to say, yeah, I'll, I'll sit down and, and do that. Um, I love the idea of being able to have enough flexibility in your schedule. You could just stop and sit down for a little while and maybe have a cup of tea or something while you're doing that. We also learned that Boaz is a good negotiator. Did you catch this? He's just super chill. He does not start with all the details right away. Oh, hey, that land's available. Yeah, I'll buy it. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah, there is this thing about uh, Ruth. You, you'd have to marry her. Oh, so like, he's, like he knows how to put the hook in him and just reel him in. I love that about Boaz. He's really, he's really good. But he is a man of impeccable integrity because he could have snuck in and done this whole thing and, and none, no one would have been the wiser. At the, at the risk of losing this opportunity, he says, no, we're going to do this in the right way. We're going to take all the risks. We're going to pay the price of doing this in the proper fashion. So he's got great Integrity. So those are some of the things we're learning about Boaz in this story. And as we've established throughout this series, that Boaz is a Christ figure, an image or a picture of Jesus Christ, a, a pre-telling, as I like to say, 
of the gospel message and how he operates tells us some things about the gospel and about how our salvation happens. And then there's, you know, throughout the book, a nice little life lesson scattered through like Easter eggs uh, that we get to discover. Um, you know, one example would be, I, I don't know if you find it surprising, uh, but we are never given the name of the, the family redeemer who's, who's first in line for Ruth and for the property. We don't know his name. He's never said. He, he wants so badly to protect his estate and protect his name, right? For, for ongoing, for perpetuity, that he, he, he actually he denies his social obligation because he's so protective of his name. And in trying to save his name, he lost it. We don't even know what his name is. Perhaps the author is trying to protect him so he's not embarrassed, but he lets it go. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. Let's put this one on the screen. Here's what Jesus said. He said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. Don't, just as a life lesson, don't be so concerned about trying to protect your name or your wealth, or your reputation, that you miss out on the opportunities that God brings you to do the right thing. Don't worry about protecting yourself so much that you miss those good opportunities. And all of Boaz's conduct, from his support of Ruth in the field, to his nighttime protection of her that we talked about last week, brings out this quality of his that he's open and he's transparent in his dealings. Right, And not only that, does so with the witness of respected men around him. He is not secretive. He is not hiding anything. He abides by the law, and therefore he can be completely honest in his business. Some of us are sometimes tempted to, you know, take a shortcut or, 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 you know, kind of try to beat the system a little bit, but he doesn't, and therefore he can be completely transparent in what he does. Well, what does that have to do with Jesus? How would that relate... Well, everything Jesus did, Jesus did publicly, right? He did openly, whether it was his miracles, whether it was his teaching, whether it was the time he spent with his disciples, whether it was huge crowds or small groups, uh, everything, even his rebukes of religious leaders, Jesus did openly and publicly. He, in everything he dealt, he didn't hide anything. Jesus was crucified publicly. He was, he was laid in another person's grave, so he couldn't even be secretive about where he was buried, he appeared to many people after his resurrection and then he, his return to heaven was witnessed by his disciples. Everything openly and publicly sealing your redemption. I would say it this way. If you're writing notes today, you can put this down. This is in your outline. Provide it in your, in your program today. The Savior has no secrets. The Savior has no secrets. If you've ever considered another religion or even wondered about maybe other churches or denominations, let me give you one simple red flag. A lack of transparency. When there's secrecy, that's reason to be concerned. 
If, if, if someone, if a group cannot be, can open about their Bible translation, how that happened, about how they came up with their doctrine, about, um, you know, how their holy writings came about, if it's all dependent on kind of one person or it's done in a secret fashion or, well, we can't tell you until you're fully in, I say time out. That is not healthy. That is not a healthy approach. Everything about Jesus is open and transparent. Uh, that, that's how he functions. You know, for example, we, we would say, well, you'd say, Brian, what about the inspiration of Scripture? How, describe that. Well, I can't tell you exactly how the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, but we know that nearly every book of the Bible, in, for in nearly every book of the Bible, we can either point to a, a writer or a group of, of authors who penned that book for us. It's not all one guy just kind of went to his closet and wrote the thing and said, here you go. Right? It didn't work that way. So you've got this kind of openness, this transparency. We've got this particular book written over 1,500 years by probably 40 different authors, and yet it all hangs together. It's coherent and, and makes sense together. And so everything about Jesus is open and transparent. Now there's mystery. There's mystery in what we believe. Things that are kind of hard to understand. But I would divide it this way. Things of God can have mystery. But secrecy comes from humankind. And that's a difference. If it's mysterious, that's a, that's a spiritual thing. That's a God thing. If it's, if it's secrecy, right, that's a human thing. I, I'd, be, I'd just warn you, be cautious when it's secrets. Be okay with some mystery. Be okay with some mystery. You don't need to know everything. But if someone is hiding something from you, you have reason for concern. So everything that Jesus did, He did in the open. I love that about our faith. There's nothing to hide. Our doctrine, what we teach, how we arrived at our convictions, how the Bible is translated for us, it's all in the open. No secrets with the Savior. Now let's jump back. I want to go back to verses 5 and 6 as we, as we just take a look again at, at Boaz and this unnamed relative. It says this, Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi requires you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow, that way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land and the family. Well, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem land. I cannot do it. Now, why not? Why wouldn't he redeem that land? Well, he says it right there. Right? He feared losing his own estate. Maybe, maybe he didn't have any sons yet, and he feared that if he married Ruth, and they only had one son, that everything of his would go to that son, although that's, that's not a verifiable truth, because that contradicts exactly what's taking place in there. Um, maybe he just worried that somehow, you know, just the continuation of his name would be lost. Uh, if Boaz, on the other hand, represents Jesus and the work of salvation under what we would call the New Covenant, the New Covenant is God's agreement with us that we're saved not by keeping the law, not by good works, but we're saved by God's grace through our faith in Christ. Right. If Boaz represents Jesus, then it's possible that the unnamed Redeemer, the, the, the closer relative, represents the law. Represents the, the Jewish law. Look, look what Romans chapter 8 says in verse 3 and 4. It says this, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature, or it's literally because of our flesh. So God did what the law could not do. 
He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So, Paul says in this whole book, look, the law is a good thing, but, the, but the law, all the law can do is point out to how sinful I am because I can't meet the exacting standards of the law, which is perfection. So what's got to happen? The law has to be met, but I can't do it. And Jesus does that in our place. I, I would say it this way. If you're writing this down, put this in. The Redeemer does because religion can't. The Redeemer does because religion can't. Think about this. Those of you who have been, who are, who are parents, or have been parents, did you ever watch your toddler, you know, your really young child trying to do something that they couldn't yet do? It was too hard for them. You know, when they're really little, trying to drink out of a cup, remember that? Or, 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 or you know, feed themselves, or, or later on, you know, maybe clean up the room, or, or do some things that were just a task that was just a little bit uh, beyond them. As, Boy, from as young as I can remember with my kids, you know, they, I would take them on my lap and they would hold onto the steering wheel in the car, pretending they're driving. And then when they got a little older, I know it's not legal, but they would drive and I, you know, they would steer the, the car and, you know, I, we'd be in a safe place, whatever, but give them the experience of, so they feel like they're driving. They're really not driving, right? But they feel like they are. Now, if I had said to my, you know, eight-year-old, um, listen, you need to be driving yourself to and from school. And I don't care that you can't reach the pedals. So, you just got to figure this out. I know it's illegal, but find a way. Right? It would be impossible. It's not permitted. It's impossible. It's beyond their ability to do so. So, would I be angry for them for having to drive on their behalf? No. Of course not. I would do for them what they were unable to do. Now, obviously the day comes when they drive me around, and that's even better. I love that. But um, in, in the same way, just because they couldn't do it doesn't mean to say I don't want to. In the same way, just because I can't redeem myself doesn't mean Jesus does so out of frustration or exasperation. But doesn't say, fine, I'll do it. No, that's not how Jesus does. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it. They, they, they're not able. I'll do it. I'll pay the price. Father, not my will, but your will be done. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that for them. That's why Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf. He doesn't redeem us out of frustration, but out of his great love. It's not because we're not trying hard enough. It's because it's impossible for us to save ourselves. And the closer relative in this story would not or could not, it's unclear, he would, but he, he would not satisfy that full extent of the law and, and therefore could not save the women, could not redeem them. And, and same way, Boaz didn't say, fine, I'll do it. No, it pleased him to do so. It was, it was his desire to do the right thing despite whatever risk or cost he might incur. And, and, and the relative... As funny as a picture this is, the relative is left hobbling around without a sandal. 
I just kind of like that picture. Can you see him in the rest of the town going through this today? Have you ever tried to walk on one shoe? It's just easier to take the other one off too, isn't it? And now he's walking around and stones. And, ah, ah. I mean, he's like suffering a little bit. And some public humiliation like, what's up with the one sandal? Ah, I didn't want to do what I was supposed to do, right? And now I'm hobbling around without a sandal. And it's like the person who says, Hey, I'll be saved. I'm a pretty good person. I'll get this figured out. We would say that is self-righteousness, counting on works to save you instead of grace. And that person does not realize. That person says, I'm good enough. I'll be good enough for God. I'll save myself. That person doesn't realize they're hobbling around without a sandal. They're stumbling around in life. They're stepping on stones that hurt. They They don't realize what Jesus has made available to them. It's like... Jesus, those of you who are Bible readers, know this amazing story in Luke 15 that Jesus tells of a man and two sons and and, and, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son says, I'm I'm getting out of here and takes the inheritance and off he goes and lives wild and high and squanders everything and finally says, this is terrible. I'm going to go back home to my father. And he comes back to his father and he's going to just beg to to be a servant in the household and, and for mercy. And he comes back. And what does the father do? Embraces him, gives him a robe, puts a ring on his finger and puts what? Sandals on his feet. When we, are, when we are receiving the grace of Christ, he completely covers us. Sandals, shoes on the feet, represents identity, represents provision, represents uh, a belonging in all those ways. I can't really get into that now, but there are a lot of religious people in this world. Lots. Tons of religious people who are far more devout and faithful in their religious activities than I'll ever be. I've seen them. We, we, we witness this for ourselves, right? But keeping all the rules of religion does nothing to save them. It cannot save them. It cannot save any, anyone else either. In fact, what it often does is brings death to themselves and to others. Spiritual death, physical death. This morning in the news, maybe you saw that there was a, a bombing in a church in Pakistan. Religious extremely devoted religious people who, who bring death to others. That's what religion will do to people. Now, it doesn't mean to say you shouldn't practice the habits of faithfulness, right? Being here in church right now, doing your devotions, prayer, giving, worship, those things are for your own benefit. And they tie you into the community of faith. I want to show you a picture. We've produced a, a fresh version of the R&R Journal. You hear me talk about it all the time. These are now available at the Connection Center. Uh, $5, $5 to get you one of those journals. And uh, in there is, a, is a, a couple of options of reading plans. You can read something every day, uh, see what the Lord's saying to you, take a few notes on what that's doing. There's instructions in there. I can show you how to do that. But that's a good habit. That's a good habit of faithfulness to do. And I encourage you to do that. Maybe make that your 2018 goal that you're going to read through the New Testament or maybe even read through the whole Bible in 2018. You can do that back there. Get one today while they're, while they're there. But listen, all the good habits will not save you, will not even keep you saved. It's all by God's grace. Religion is simply insufficient. And that's why we keep coming back to Jesus when we stumble in sin. It's because the Redeemer does what religion cannot and will not do. Now, maybe I'm overestimating Boaz. Maybe he really was in this for himself. Maybe he's just, you know, thinking, hey, I, this is going to work in my favor. 
Because he could get wealthier in this arrangement. More land, more crops, more kids, right? More prestige. Not a bad arrangement for having to, you know, marry this poor foreigner, lonely widow, Ruth. But I believe, in, in fact, that he was taking the, all the same risks that the closer relative was taking. Maybe even more so, because we know he was an established businessman in town. We know that he already had land, and already had wealth, and already had prominence. So it was a risk for him. Now, he would benefit, but here's the real beauty of this, is that many others would benefit as well. If you're, this is one more thing you can write down today. Redemption benefits everyone. Redemption benefits everyone. I mean, consider the blessing that we're told in the passage from his actions, right? Ruth gets pregnant and has a son. And that alone, that picture of new life is a picture of salvation when you come to Christ and you receive new life. You're a new creation in Christ and new life is birthed, right? You're born again. Naomi's loneliness is absolved through this grandchild. The women have a home. They can keep the land. The, the family name is preserved. We're told that. The family line extends to Israel's greatest king, David, and, and we've all been blessed by that. He's the son of Jesse. David's in the ancestry of Jesus. We're going to talk about that next week. Matthew chapter 1. And so when Boaz acted rightly on Ruth and Naomi's behalf, he benefited, yes, but so did many others, much more so, including you and me today, because Jesus comes through that line of Boaz. And when the closer relative was unable or even unwilling to save the women, that man just perished without so much as a name to be remembered. And what about the redeemed woman, Ruth? Most importantly, right, she's no longer Ruth the Moabite woman, Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the outsider. She has a new identity. She's in the community of God's people, fully welcomed and embraced. She had given up her life, right, by leaving Moab, by committing herself to Naomi. She'd given up her life. And in exchange, she received new life. She received that by submitting to the, to the redemption of her Savior. And in so doing, she, she gained a wonderful, prosperous life. And finally, before concluding with the genealogy of David, the narrator shifts back to Naomi, the one who started out as this grieving, bitter widow, the one who had lost everything but now has gained everything, including a permanent place in history and a, a book of the Bible named after her daughter-in-law. She's Naomi's forever ensconced in this book. Well, those are pretty amazing benefits because of Boaz doing the right thing. Redeeming us. Redemption benefits everyone. What about us? How do we fit in here? Well, we've established that Jesus is the Savior, our kinsman redeemer. Right? We've set forth that like Ruth, we cannot save ourselves. We have to submit to the Redeemer and trust Him to rescue us. We've, we've, we've come to see that it's God's kindness that saves us, not, not ourselves. But we take the initiative. We engage in faith so that we can receive the salvation. So then what's the outcome for you and for me? Well, long range. You know, whether or not you trust in Christ Jesus as your Redeemer... It's going to make a difference. For sure, your own salvation is at stake. 
but through your faith in Jesus and through your faithfulness to Him, how many others are going to come to know Christ? How many generations of families are going to be impacted? Some of you are first-generation believers. You're the first one in your family line to, to put your faith in Christ. And you have, you have steered your entire family line in a way that's going to bless them, in a way that's going to be life-giving, in a way that's going to bring uh, you know, redemption to many generations. Pastor Stephen and I have a friend who, you know, when I met him, he was just coming out of a, of a recovery program, the rescue mission, in his 20s. His life was destined for death, physical death without question. And he submitted himself to God's grace, to some good hard work and discipline as well. And he he came out of the the program, the rescue mission. Somehow he got himself in a fresh state, got a degree, carried on, got his master's degree. He's working in an incredibly wonderful position in the medical field. He's married. He's got a child. He, he works in a church. He leads other people to Jesus. One thing after another in our friend's life that points to that simple decision to say, am I going to trust the Savior or not? And generations are changed because of that. Redemption benefits everybody. You can think back to your own life. Key moments. If I had done that instead of this, I'd be in trouble or I'd be dead. Can't you? But you chose to follow Jesus. And He's kept you alive and He's sustained you. And sometimes it's really, really, really hard. And you're not sure how it's going to work out. But you know you can trust your Redeemer.